Good evening, church. Aloha to all of you. With all of you, I invite you to open up your Bibles to Luke. Uh, this evening, we are in chapter 23, beginning with verse 8. We're going to continue through verse 25. Luke chapter 23, beginning in verse 8. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by vehemently accusing him. And Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day, for before they had been in enmity with each other. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish him and release him. But they all cried out together, Away with this man, and release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, Crucify him, crucify him. A third time he said to them, Why? What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified, and their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. This is the word of the Lord, church. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for another evening that you give us this Lord's Day to come together as your people, to worship you with song, prayer, your word. And Father, we just pray that you would continue to bless the gathering of your people, Lord. Minister to us through your word as we look at these final hours of Christ's life, be among us, Father. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. As we come close to finishing up the Gospel of Luke, we are looking in great detail uh, at the final days of Jesus' life. Jesus, of course, we saw a few weeks ago he was arrested, brought to trial, and as we have seen, this is not a straightforward 
trial. In a matter of hours, Jesus was transferred between three courts of laws. He was tried three, you can even argue, four times. First trial is before a Jewish court, the Sanhedrin. It's a council of 71 men assembled for a, they assembled for a special session in the middle of the night, a highly illegal session. They stripped Jesus of all of his rights and legal protection, and they together voted to condemn him to death on the charge of blasphemy. And blasphemy, this is the charge because Jesus dared to call himself a son of God. He dared to say that he is equal to God, which he is, as the scriptures, as the prophets have, have been spoken. That's what they have declared about Jesus, and they've, they've missed it. Jesus periodically would tell them, you seek scriptures, you, you look, you study it, and you've missed the fact that they are all about me. And so uh, blasphemy, for, you, for those of you who don't know, blasphemy means uh, it's basically using the, anything about God, speaking about God in not inerrant, what's the word? <laughs> um, speaking about God sacrilegiously, speaking about him, um, not caring, speaking wrongly of him. And so that is blasphemy, and that is what they are trying Jesus for. And so as they condemned Jesus to death, the Sanhedrin did not have the power. This Jewish council did not have the power to actually put him to death. That was Rome's jurisdiction. And so Friday morning, very early, they dragged Jesus before Pilate, who was the representative of Rome in this region. Now imagine you're Pilate. It's early, early morning. It's just, the day is just breaking. And 71 of the most powerful men in Israel show up at your doorsteps demanding an immediate trial. The Sanhedrin is made up of different parties, parties that were at odds with each other on so many things. They were enemies with each other on so many issues. Yet here they are, united with one voice, demanding an immediate trial of Jesus from Rome. And this is the second trial, the trial before Pilate, the governor. The Sanhedrin, of course, as they come to him, they're not ready to accept whatever the outcome of the trial will be. They are making it very clear the only acceptable judgment they will be satisfied with is the death sentence for Jesus. That's the only thing they'll be satisfied with. And so they malign Jesus. They lie about him to Pilate. And as we have seen last week, Pilate, seeing what's going on, he wants to get out of this as quick as possible. He does not want this mess on his hands. And so as they are speaking about Jesus, as they are building their case, he grabs on to the word Galilean. He asks them, is he from Galilee? They say, yes. And Galilee falls under the jurisdiction of another governor, 
Herod. Pilate is the governor of Judea and Samaria, uh, Middle East, where Jesus spent most of his life and a big portion of his uh, ministry. That's under Herod's jurisdiction. Herod's actually in town. He's in Jerusalem. And so Pilate's, Pilate sends them off to Herod. He transfers this mess over to him. Here you go, Herod. Figure this out. This is one of your guys. And this is Jesus' trial Number three, Jesus before Herod. That's where we find ourselves uh, in, in our text today. That's where our text begins. Jesus is before Herod. The Sanhedrin brings him there. This is the same Herod who killed John the Baptist, if you guys remember. He was, if you guys remember the story, he was kind of tricked into killing John by his wife and uh, stepdaughter. And we know that Herod regretted killing John. He was under some guilt for what he had done. And so as they bring Jesus to him, we read in verse 8, when Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad. For he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So as they bring Jesus to him, Herod is excited. He's glad. He's giddy. Herod heard a lot about Jesus. He heard all the amazing stories of Jesus' ministry, how he healed the sick, cast out demons, how he made the blind see, the mute talk, the deaf hear. He heard all of this. And he's excited to finally meet Jesus. But here's the problem. Herod is not interested to see and to meet Jesus as king and as Lord before, before whom he must bow down and whom he must worship. No, Herod is looking at Jesus purely as entertainment. Just another entertainer in his court. What kind of tricks can you do, Jesus? What kind of supernatural signs and wonders can you perform? I'm sure we can find a sick person around him. Bring him in. Jesus, show us your power. Give us some signs. Herod wants to be entertained. Herod has one agenda. The chief priests and the scribes, they have Another agenda, we read in verse 10, in the meantime, the chief priests and the scribes stood by vehemently accusing him. As Herod is trying to get Jesus to show him some tricks, the priests and the scribes are passionately building a case against Jesus, trying to persuade Herod to sentence a death penalty for Jesus. In verse 9, we read Jesus' reaction. As Herod questioned Jesus at some length, Herod questioned Jesus at some length, but he made no answer. Jesus was silent. And in verse 11, we read that Herod sends Jesus back to Pilate. He did not grant the Sanhedrin what they were demanding. 
We know that Herod already regrets killing one man of God, killing John. This may still be haunting him to this day. I think it is, and he doesn't want to repeat the same mistake. Yet before he sends him off, we read in verse 11, And Herod, with his soldiers, treated him with contempt and mocked him, then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. By clothing Jesus in this splendid clothing, expensive, extravagant, royal clothing, Herod is not honoring Jesus. He is mocking him. Luke is clearly telling us that they were treating Jesus with contempt and mocking him. The Jews are bringing a charge against Jesus that he is saying, Jesus is saying that he is king, that he is God. And as a joke, Herod gives him clothing worthy of that royal title. You're a king? Well, here you go. Jesus is bloody at this point. He's seen a a, a good share of uh, torture by now. And so he sends him off. And we see in verse 12 that Pilate and Herod had some sort of enmity between each other before and after this day. For some reason, they became good friends. We're not really given the reasons why. And so Herod sends Jesus and his accusers away, and they find themselves once again before Pilate. Pilate gathers them all together, the rulers, the elders, and he's going to try to put this to end once and for all. He's going to give it his best to release Jesus. Between verse 13 and 22, three times Pilate makes the case before them that he has looked at all of the evidence, him and his legal team examined it all, all the charges, all the accusation, they've examined it. And here's their decision. Quote, end of verse 14. Here's their conclusion. I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Pilate declares Jesus not guilty. When we look at the historic descriptions of Pilate from other sources, we know that he was not a flexible man. He did not have a soft heart. He was brutal. He was very violent. It took a very special kind of man to rule over Judea. They were very stubborn and proud people. They hated Rome. And every chance they got, they started insurrections and uprisings. Rome made sure that whoever is governor over Judea and over Samaria, that they are particularly cruel and ruthless. Pilate had no sympathy for an ounce of rebellion against Rome. That's why his verdict about Jesus carries So much weight. This is not a soft man who just wants to let Jesus go. Pilate is not a man to shy away from violence. And this brutal man, who has no problem of killing people, he loves to kill people. As a representative of Rome, 
He looked at all the evidence before him. If there was any, he would not excuse it. And he, this man, three times declares that Jesus is not guilty. Verse 4, I find no guilt in this man. Verse 14, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Verse 22, what evil has he done? I found in him no guilt deserving death. And we see in our text that this is the conclusion of not only Pilate. Pilate also brings the authority of Herod into this. Verse 15, he says, neither did Herod. Herod listened to all of the accusations, to the case built by the Sanhedrin. He listened against all he listened to all the charges, and he himself did not find Jesus guilty of any of these claims. And so at this point, Jesus should be released. He's fully exonerated. His name is in the clear. All the highest courts ruling are in Jesus' favor. All the charges should be dropped. Yet the crowd made up of these elites, these were not just commoners, these were not just the people of the streets, these were the elites, they refused to accept those terms. They want death. And we see in our text that Pilate tries a few middle ground negotiation tactics. First, twice he offers to punish Jesus and release him. Verse 16 and verse 22. Uh, He tells him, let me just punish him and release him. Let me, all right, let's just say he is guilty of some of these things. Let's punish him and let him go. Roman punishment was severe. This would not be This would not be an easy thing for Jesus to bear. The crowd yet was not interested in negotiating. They were not interested in compromises. They didn't just want blood. They wanted death. And even this compromise that Pilate was trying to arrange here, this compromising to punish a man who was declared not guilty by two governors, Three times by Pilate. This is already a major violation of the law. They won't accept it. In desperation, Pilate tries one more thing. Every year on Passover, the Jews would uh, were granted to release one prisoner of their choice uh, who was basically condemned to death. They were given, a, on Passover, they were given a, a chance to release him to be free. It's like pardoning a turkey on Thanksgiving. You're not going to be eaten. We'll release you into the wild. And so Pilate offers them Jesus. If Jesus is guilty of death, if he deserves to die as you say he does, let's release him. Let's all just have Mercy on him and let him go on this Passover. 
Little does Pilate know that Jesus is the Passover lamb who was prepared to pay to become a sacrifice on this day. In verse 18, they respond, but they all cried out together, away with this man and release to us Barabbas. They chose another man to be released, Barabbas. And verse 19 gives us a description of who this man was. A man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. And this is so ironic. Because their charges against Jesus is that he is somehow starting a revolt against Rome and against Caesar. Their charges against Jesus are basically that he's an insurrectionist. And here they choose to release a man who is actually guilty of everything they are accusing Jesus to be guilty of. Barabbas actually started an insurrection in the city. And he didn't just root people to go against Rome, but he actually murdered people. And here they say, release him. They release him as they demand death to Jesus on those very same charges. Again, Pilate pleads with them. They keep shouting in verse 21, crucify him. Crucify him. Verse, 30, verse 22, Pilate again makes his last plea. And then we read in verse 23, but they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified, and their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demands should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. The mob finally got what they came for. They finally got the permission from Rome to crucify Christ. Pilate, instead of standing firm on the rule of law, instead of standing firm on justice, he gave in to the pressure. We see first that he began to compromise. And then in fear that this is going to spill over into a full-scale riot, he gave the innocent Jesus over to death, even as he exonerated him and said three times, pronounced three times, that Jesus is not Guilty. This was the most unjust trial in the history of the world. The Son of God, the creator and the sustainer of all, mistreated, mocked by kings and rulers, mocked by religious leaders, and then condemned to death. And here we see that there are no laws 
No legal protections, no systems, no governing authorities that are able to protect even the most innocent against an angry mob. All of those protections were not granted to Jesus even after he was declared not guilty. None of those systems were able to protect Christ. Today we put so much trust in orderly governments, into systems, into legal protections. We are thankful to God for order. We are thankful to God for this good and just legal systems. And when those things actually are used rightly, it is such a grace and mercy of God. But we should realize that all these things can be gone in a moment. All these protections can be waived for a greater agenda and purpose if we as God's people stand in the way. Church, our only true hope, the only one we can fully rely on, count on, and put our trust in is our God. None of the legal protections represented by two of the most sophisticated cultures and systems of that time were able to protect the only innocent man who has ever lived. They were unable. We as a country take so much of how we rule from this very Roman system and from the Jewish system. They were unable to protect the most innocent man on the charge of blasphemy. Every culture has their own gods. And every culture has blasphemy laws. Blasphemy, again, it means speaking sacrilegiously against God, profaning God, irreverent speak against God, And our secular culture today has gods. Gods that you must not dare say anything against. And if you do, you will be accused of blasphemy. And so what are our gods? LGBTQ, woke ideology, just to mention some, money, Self-love, a right to self-happiness, feminism, abortion, and we can go on and on. The gods of our culture that must not be touched. If you dare speak anything against any one of these gods, if you dare to blaspheme them, you find yourself in trouble. And church, unless God has mercy on us, the penalty for these blasphemies will only increase with time. Legal protection will be for all, except the blasphemers. And church, listen, if you find yourself tiptoeing around these issues, 
trying hard not to step on toes. Maybe you're buying in into some of the arguments. Let me assure you, you are already following and obeying the blasphemy laws of our day. You are already paying respect and honor to the gods of our culture while they are blaspheming and profaning the one and only true God. Today, no one will punish you or cancel you or go after you if you profane the name of the true God. But you better not dare touch the gods of our culture. To which gods do you pledge? Which gods do you respect today? Are you ready to follow the footsteps of your Savior down the road of suffering? As Pilate, Herod, and the Sanhedrin go back and forth, back and forth between each other, what is Jesus doing? Interestingly, in our section of text, we have zero words from Jesus. He is silent. Silent before Herod. And he refuses to make a defense of himself before Pilate and before his accusers. Jesus has no lawyers, no representatives. All his friends are hiding in fear. He has no one in his corner fighting for him. And through this entire process, Jesus, knowing full well that he is not guilty and that he has been declared not guilty by two governors, two most powerful men in that nation, Jesus still makes no effort in making a defense for himself. He remains silent. Isaiah 53, 7, a prophecy of this very day, says he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And the question is why? Why did Jesus not fight for and defend himself? He is so good with words. We've seen him so many times answer back to the Pharisees, to the priests. He would uh, debate them. He would shut them down. He would leave them speechless. Why did Jesus stop now? Justice for himself, fair representation, mistreatment, mockery, shame, beating, torture, crucifixion, death. All of these battles Jesus could have fought. He could have engaged in them along the way and tried to prevent all of these things from happening He does not. He is silent. And he is silent because he is fighting a much 
greater fight, a much greater battle. Christ had his eye on a greater prize. Jesus has set his sword against a greater enemy. All of these things done against Jesus were horrible and wicked, but Jesus was able to endure, to stay quiet, because fighting for himself in these, on these things would prevent him from reaching his final goal, which is, church, redeeming you from sin, from the darkness. It is defeating Satan. It is defeating sin. It is defeating our enemy, death. Defeating them through the laying down of his own life and then resurrecting on the third day in the power of God. That's what Jesus' eyes were set on. These are the battles that he was actually fighting. That's, that was his mission, and that's why he remained silent and let men do their best against him. Both Jew and Gentile crucifying the Lord of glory. And church, aren't you thankful that Christ finished the job? That he did not get cut up, cut up in those small battles. From one end, we may get angry and upset seeing the mistreatment of Jesus. But from another, I am thankful that Pilate did not get his way and did not release Christ. Jesus was willing to suffer injustice, to be unjustly accused, to suffer and die for the sake of a greater goal, redeeming us from the kingdom of darkness, church. And so church, as redeemed people, are we willing to suffer a little for the sake of Christ's name? We don't know what is ahead, in the short term, we have no clue. The world is in turmoil. We have no clue how things are going to go. But we do know what is ahead. We do know what will happen in the long run, and the scriptures is clear that Christ will win. All the gods and those who worship them will be destroyed. All of Christ's enemies will be put under his feet and Christ will rule with his redeemed people without an end. So for the Christian, Christ was able to endure the smaller, brutal, wicked, yet smaller battles. He was willing to lose them for the sake of redeeming his people, for the sake of completing a much greater job can we, can you keep your eye on this great prize that Christ will win, that his enemies will be put under his feet, our enemies will be put under his, his feet, and that we will rule with Christ? Can you keep your eyes on this great prize that you will be with Christ as you await your redemption? Are you willing to suffer a little? 
Are you willing to follow in the footsteps of your Savior and even die for his name? By God's power, you can. And for those of you who are still worshiping other gods, recognize the lordship of Jesus over all. He's already won. And he is coming as a great judge, and he will rule justly, and he will repay everyone according to their deeds. He will rule with righteousness. On that great day, all of us standing before Christ, all of us will deserve death. But only those who are found in Christ will be safe, not because we are better than the rest, but because Jesus became the Passover lamb. Because we are covered by the blood of the lamb who suffered in our place. That's why we will be safe, church. And so believe in him. If you have not, repent of your sin and his blood will cover you as well. And you will be forgiven and you will be safe in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, What wicked things were done to your son. He endured all of it on our behalf. The one who did not know sin, the one who did not sin, became sin, became a curse for our sake so that we who deserve this death may be pardoned, may be set free. Father, we thank you for this great work. We thank you for your son, Jesus. And Father, as we face today, as we live our lives, I just pray, Father, that as we are compelled every single moment to compromise with the culture, to compromise with the gods of this world, Father, I pray that we would stay faithful to you and to your word. And Lord, help Set our gaze on Christ and what he has accomplished for us and what is awaiting us very, very soon. And Lord, may that empower us. May the power of Jesus empower us to endure. Maybe to even suffer for your name's sake knowing that at the end, Lord, you win. So, Father, be with us, empower us, help us be faithful. And, Lord, for those who do not know you, those who are still living in their sin, I pray, Lord, that they would see that Satan's hold on them is their sin, and you have paid for that sin, and in you they can be forgiven released of all the guilt and condemnation, and Satan would have no hold on them anymore. Father, I just pray that you would give them the spiritual resurrection and new birth. In Jesus' name we pray.
Amen.